0: David Reed. When I was 7 years old, I was raped by my stepfather, and that was the first of um a series of sexual assaults and physical assaults over 5 years. I was in hospital for 3 months. No one in the medical profession did anything about it either. I wasn't going to school for those 3 months. What did the education service do? They failed me as well. Said am Irish. I was living on the streets at the time of the civil war. So it's not just being on the streets, it's streets with bombs and, you know, bullets, and I'm not a victim of abuse, I'm a survivor of abuse. I'm gonna go and take over this bankrupt company and I'm gonna turn it into something special, but I made it work.
1: You made it work to the point where it's now an eight-figure business and one of the most dynamic, fast-growing in the whole of Europe, so you made it work just a tad. Welcome to Inspired By, the show that brings you inspiring stories from inspiring entrepreneurs with a twist. Now, I believe that every successful entrepreneur and celebrity on this planet has an inspiring story, and they have stories that they haven't yet told, not because they don't want to tell the story, but because they haven't been asked the right questions. So my job on the show is to ask the real questions so that you get the real answers. Now, with that in mind, let's get started. Welcome back to Inspired By. Now, today's guest, I'm really excited to introduce you all to. He's not only an incredible entrepreneur, a social entrepreneur, in fact, he is a multi-award winning international speaker. And would you believe he is the chief executive of the fastest, most dynamic social enterprise business in the UK? Yes, it's the one and only David Reed. David, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, thank you so much for that. And thank you for having me.
1: No problem. And it's so interesting when I introduce people like that, because a lot of the time people say to me, God, that is that me? And I know that you are one of the most humble people I've ever had on this show <laughs> and one of the most humble people I've ever met. Now, I'm curious for you, David. I mentioned there that you're, you are a social entrepreneur. That's mm-hmm. the title that you've given yourself and others to call you. What is a social entrepreneur to you?
0: It means that every business that I get involved in has a community benefit or a social benefit. So I don't do any kind of business that's purely for private profit. I do about the impact it has on people's lives or the impact it has on communities.
1: Wow that's so, so inspiring. What's made you want to get into that industry or what, what's attracted you to that concept of being a social entrepreneur?
0: I think it's my own story, really. Um, you know, we we talk about our journey, don't we? I don't really like the term our journey, but my journey started when I was seven years old. I was raped by my stepfather and that was the first of um, a series of sexual assaults and physical assaults over five years. And at seven years old, I didn't really know what that meant or what had actually happened to me I couldn't describe it but that changed my life that really was the point that that everything changed for me and by the time I was 12 years old I knew that I wanted to commit my life to helping transform other people's lives but particularly young people and that's 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 where it all started really
1: that's that's breathtaking really and The thing I find fascinating about you sharing your story, David, I've known known you for quite a lot of time, and every time we talk, what you share and how humbly you share it and also how vulnerable you share it has changed. Have you found yourself being able to share that story okay? How has that journey been of processing what's happened to you?
0: Well, by the time I was um, around 16, 17, um, I'd been living on the streets on and off at that point for three or four years, but I started going to a a youth group and I met... um, it was actually a woman who was a teacher, but she was a volunteer youth worker in this youth group and got to know each other. And we had a conversation, I think it was probably around 10, 10 months, something like that after we met. And I felt safe enough to tell her about the things that had happened to me when I was younger. And the way she responded kind of took me by surprise, but it was also what led to the subsequent changes. So I told her what I've just told you and some of the other things that I experienced as a young person. And her response to me was, and she looked me straight in the eyes when she said it, she said, yeah, you've had a shit time. What are you going to do about it? And I started to think, wow, what am I going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? And I spent the next probably 10 years in and out of therapy and trying to get off the drugs that I was using at the time. And cause been living on the streets mostly, and I've been using quite a lot of heavy drugs, really, um. I was doing things I shouldn't be doing, but you know and not doing things I should be doing, like going to school, for example. Um, so it was a pretty tough time and um if any of your your listeners haven't worked out, the accent is Irish, so put that in the time frame. I was living on the streets during the Civil War in Ireland, so it's not just being on the streets, it's being on the streets when there's bombs and uh, gunfights and all that kind of stuff going off around you. So I was lucky to survive all of that. But at sixteen seventeen, that conversation was a pivotal moment was an absolutely transformational moment for me. And it led to the next six years of soul searching and finding myself, if you like. Um, and by the time I was around 27, I thought that's it. I'm perfect now. <laughs> I thought I'd made it. I thought, right, I'm healed. I've recovered. I'm done. I'm a, I'm a whole person. I can go out and see the world now. Um, obviously <laughs> the, the innocence and naivety of youth really, but it was at that point that I, that I decided that I wanted to, um, start working towards coming to live in England and make a career here in England. And I knew then, well, I knew from 12 years old, really, that it was going to be some kind of a social worker, social care. I knew nothing at that stage about social enterprises or um, being a social entrepreneur. That that came much, much later.
1: Wow, David, everything you've shared is just so raw. And I first of all, really appreciate you sharing it here. Now, every time I've spoken to you, David, we've met each other for quite a few years and yeah. I've seen you open up more and be way more vulnerable about your story it wasn't just something you could just very quickly share so publicly how have you found that processing journey of first of all processing your story and what happened to you and now also sharing it
0: well i think if you go back to uh, those earlier times in my life and and how things changed um you know the the pivotal moment at, at seven but when i was 12 years old uh there was another um situation that developed where where basically i went to the local police station And told the police that I'd experienced five years of physical and sexual abuse by my stepfather. Little did I know that uh, the police officer I was speaking to played golf with my stepfather. So instead of doing what they should do, they put me in the back of a police car, took me home and told my stepfather uh, basically what I'd said. That resulted in me spending the next three months in in hospital. I'm not going to go into the detail about the injuries, but I was in hospital for three months and then I spent the next few years living on the streets on and off or sofa surfing and things like that. But at 16, 17, I started going to a youth group and I met this incredible youth worker. She's just one of those people that you warm to immediately, uh, very engaging. You know, the kind of person that you meet and, and you never forget. We started to bond and and after a period of time, um, I felt safe enough to tell her what had happened and what i had been through. And the way she responded to that was she looked me directly in the eyes and she said, you know what, you've been through a shit time, what are you going to do about it? Now, that's not the way you would expect somebody necessarily to respond to that kind of story. Um, I had no idea how she was going to respond, but it worked for me. It set me on a path of transformation. I spent the next 10 years thinking about um, getting support, getting therapy, getting off the drugs that I was using. And By the time I was around 27, I knew that I wanted to move to England and start a career in in social work, social care. And I suppose the beginnings of my social entrepreneurship, of course, back then, I mean, pe- people didn't even use that term and I certainly didn't know what it meant, but I, I, I did come to England. Uh, I had no qualifications because during that time of my teenage years, and by the way, you, you know, tune into the accent, I'm Irish. I was living on the streets at the time of the civil war. So it's not just being on the streets, it's streets with bombs and you know, bullets, gunfights, all that kind of stuff. So I survived all of that and I knew that I wanted to help other people who'd been through some kind of difficult experience or some kind of trauma or who just hadn't had the best start in life. But, you know, with the naivety of youth, I came to England, no qualifications, didn't know how to start, didn't know what to do. So I went to the job center, um, basically to claim the benefits, of course. <laughs> um, and there was a scheme at the time that um, I knew nothing about while I lived in Ireland, but I found out about it when I came here. And the scheme was, if you'd been unemployed for more than 12 months, you were able to go, it was like an apprenticeship type thing, but you were able to go and you got, I think it was £10 a week extra over and above your your dole money, as it was called in those days. Um, but you also got a, a daily allowance for food um, when you're at, on your, your um, apprenticeship thing and travel money, like bus fares and stuff. When I went to see them and talk about it, there were two options. Get this, two options. You could either be a mechanic or a hairdresser. You know me, you've known me for years. (laughs) I'm not practical at all. I was never going to be a mechanic and I'm not interested in hairdressing. I like to have a decent haircut, but I'm not interested in hairdressing. Um, so as a, an unemployed young man of 27, newly arrived in England, I helped create a new scheme for people that wanted to get into social care. And I was then the first person that was placed via the scheme. So I went to a local children's home in, in Manchester, where I was based at the time. I encouraged them to join the scheme. They did. I then told them I was their first, um, placement. I can't remember the terminology we use at the time. That's I'm quite old now. It's a long time ago. It's <laughs> half my life ago, at least. Um. Anyway, so I basically ended up working there um, as a full-time volunteer. I didn't get paid a wage. I basically just got my benefits plus this extra £10 uh, a week. But they also said I had to have the bus fare. Where that that children's home was from where I lived at the time, I could walk in 15 minutes. But the only bus route was into the city centre of Manchester and back out again. So I walked every day, but I was made to take the bus fare so I was getting a couple of quid every day for bus fares. It was another way of supplementing my income. And I think that's always been there. You know, the extra ten pounds a week, getting the free meal during the day, a couple of extra quid for um the bus fares, all different income streams, you know, very small scale, but income streams. And it made me start to think about um, you know, what am I doing in the future and how I might generate different income streams. But it was when I was in that um uh children's home when I started working there uh, as a volunteer. I started to share my story, first of all, with some of the other staff. And that didn't go well at all, didn't go well at all. It was actually an organization that was run by the Catholic church and everyone who I talked to, because I'd grown up in Ireland, they assumed I was from a Catholic background and as soon as I mentioned it, they really just, it was almost like they closed ranks and shied away from it. And I thought, hold on a minute, that what that man did to me, he tried to shame me you're not going to shame me now as an adult. You, you're just not going to do it. I'm not going to let you. And that was at the point where I started to think, I need to tell more people. I need to be more open about this. And over the years, I think I've just shared bits of it with different people. Um, and it got to the point where I'm actually, not. I wouldn't say happy, that's the wrong way to phrase it. I'm willing, willing to share any element of it. If anybody wants to talk about it, I'm willing to explain it. I'm willing to talk about it. And I've you know shared it over the years. Maybe different people have heard different parts of the story. Very few people have heard the, the whole story and all the detail. But I think a few years ago when I started doing public speaking and started learning the power of sharing your story and how people engage with you, I think that accelerated the the frequency with which I, I share, um, and also the opportunity to share more publicly. And indeed on Podcast like this
1: yeah wow every time I hear you talk about your story the other day but I get shivers because the bit that frustrates me if I can about your story is that you trusted certain people with parts of it and they they betrayed that trust mm. they criticized you judged you shamed you and I can really relate to that from my own personal story obviously very different but similar feelings how did you build up that trust again so you know police betrayed your trust very early on to the point where you were in hospital for three months mm how did you then find the trust again do you think it was just time or is there something that you would recommend to people that maybe have started trying to tell their story open up ask for help and then felt that shame
0: mm. it wasn't just the police though back then at 12 years old when i told the police and they took me back to the house i was in hospital for three months no one in the medical profession did anything about it either the medical staff asked how it sustained all the injuries My stepfather said we'd had an argument that jumped out of my bedroom window and landed on the garage roof. He told them that's how I got my injuries. They believed him. They didn't check it out. They failed me as well.
1: Now, I just wanted to quickly interrupt this episode to share a quick message with you. Now, I've been hosting these interviews with Inspired by Show for a while now, and I've been loving all of the great feedback from my listeners. And it really means a lot when you all share from listening to these episodes, watching these episodes, share your incredible feedback. And I love that you love it as much as we do. Now, my mission for the Inspired by Show is to inspire others to challenge the norm, share their story, knowing that it's okay to be vulnerable and shock horror, take the mask off and be raw and real. So so I have a favour to ask. Can you help me on this mission by sharing this episode with someone who you think needs to hear this message? Maybe there's a friend, a loved one, a colleague or someone that you know that would really benefit from hearing this inspiring story. If you could do that to help us help even more people to challenge the norm and push themselves out of their own comfort zone, then I'd really appreciate it. So if you haven't already, share this episode with a friend, a loved one, a colleague or someone that you know would benefit. Now back to the episode.
0: I wasn't going to school for those three months. And then after that, I subsequently ran away and was, was kind of sofa surfing and living on the street and all the rest of it. What did the education service do? They failed me as well. And then as I, as I've just uh, said, when I started doing that voluntary work in Manchester, what what I thought was going to be the start of a a new career in social care and social entrepreneurship. They tried to shame me as well. They tried to somehow or other keep me quiet and make me feel that I shouldn't talk about it and you know me well enough try to keep me quiet that is not going (laughs) to work and the way I look at it is yes there have been multiple people who have if you like betrayed my trust I've shared things with them and they've let me down but you know over the years there's been many many more people who have um, reciprocated no that's the wrong word respected that have trusted them enough to tell them Um, And sometimes they open up and share things back or sometimes it's led to collaborative work or collaborative projects. And even though I've had those experiences of people letting me down, I still have a mantra in life or a philosophy in life. And that is trust everybody until they give you a reason not to. Otherwise they win. I'm not gonna let that happen to me. It's
1: powerful, right? And trust is one of the, what I believe is one of the quickest things to build and the quickest thing, sorry, the longest thing to build and the quickest thing to lose. For me, I trust really easily, like buy me a coffee, five minute chat and I'll probably tell you my life story, but not everyone's like that. Hmm. At what point, David, did you feel properly comfortable to start talking about what happened to you or properly openly in front of a microphone or on stage?
0: I started to tell people in person, um, when I was around 27, 28, when I came to Manchester, um, I told therapists in those 10 years that I was in therapy, that that's part of the, the process really of therapy. But in terms of saying it out loud on a stage or to a microphone, that's probably only been in the last five or six years. Wow.
1: And what what journey did you go through that made you think, do you know what, Chloe or David, now's the right time?
0: When you, When you start thinking about when is the right time for anything, you can overthink it. It's almost like you then get to the point, there's never going to be a right time. So it's actually better just to go, bollocks, it's the right time. Let's just do it.
1: Yeah, I, I love that. And I, I can remember when we first, because we obviously trained in speaking together, which is how I heard so much of your story over and over, because we practiced so many times together. But I remember when we were both speaking in Amsterdam together and on on a, an event, and it was our very first both time sharing our story publicly. <laughs> And I remember we had prepped together and said, I'm going to share this. What are you going to share? And then I was up first. I did mine. And you were like, oh my God, you shared things you weren't, you didn't, you didn't plan to share. And I was like, it just felt right. And then when you went on, it was the following day and you just shared this part that I had never heard you share. And at the end I was like, I, my jaw was on the floor because I wasn't expecting it. And I think Hmm. that's the point, right? Is that when it's true, when it's authentic, when it's real, it's not staged. It's not, it's not perfected it's raw real which is obviously what a huge part of the show is now david the thing that i love about your journey is that you have been very open to ask for help as well what would you say to anyone who's listening that maybe is in a situation where they're struggling whether that's abuse whether that's you know just disbelief in themselves or lacking confidence what advice would you give to someone who's listening
0: always seek someone who can help you if it's a personal thing and it's a you know perhaps therapy that you might need or counseling do some research, see who's recommended in your area or the, the type of um, situation you've been through that you need support with um, and approach them. If it's business, look for a recognized and respected coach uh, or a mentor. What I would say about that though is coaches and mentors can often be people who that's their business and they haven't actually had business experience themselves. So if you're in a business or it's business support that you need a coach or a mentor make sure it's someone not only who's regarded as a decent coach or a decent mentor but who's had experience with the kind of at least with business preferably the kind of business you're in so it's the same thing it doesn't matter whether it's personal or or business look for somebody who knows about the thing it is that you want to talk about Do a bit of research, find out, ask others, ask others who've used that coach or that therapist, whatever it might be, but go and talk to them. Once you've decided, yes, that's the right coach for me or the the right mentor for me or the right therapist for me, go and talk to them. If in the first five minutes you don't get a good vibe and you don't feel as if you could share everything, walk away.
1: What would you say to someone that's maybe not got that vibe? in five minutes but wants to give them a bit a better chance or another shot
0: i think if you're not feeling comfortable in five minutes it's safer to walk away one you could waste your time but if it's about therapy for example it could be much more damaging than that so i think even though you've you might have done the research you could simply have chosen their own person on paper they might look right you know you can see business mentors and coaches have got all these accolades and awards and mm-hmm. you know all of the it looks great on paper, but if they if they don't have the interpersonal skills, it's not going to work. You're not going to click. The same with any kind of therapy. If you don't feel that there's the, a, a bond, a connection there quite quickly, or you don't get the sense that it's going to grow, walk away from it and find another one.
1: Yeah, totally agree. Because if you don't feel it like trust your gut is always my vibe. And if ever I've invested in something, whether it's a therapist, I've had some terrible therapists, um, or coaches and mentors, business mentors and so on. If ever I've thought, do you know what? I'm just going to give them another chance. Or, you know, my gut, uh, maybe it's wrong. It's never wrong.
0: Do you know what though? It's not about, you you used the term there, trust your gut. I'm going to challenge you. I don't think that's what it is. I think it's about human evolution. I think it's about our natural instincts. We're hardwired from our evolutionary history to be concerned about risk and danger to notice risk and danger in the, hu- the modern human race. We've kind of suppressed some of that, but those natural instincts are still there. They're, they're deep within us. They're, yeah, they're buried deep, but if they give us a message, you damn well listen to it.
1: Yeah. 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 That's I totally agree. Cause that's the thing. A lot of us, we, we lay a stories on top of that to ignore the truth. Hmm. And deep down, if it's a danger, we know it's danger, right? What would you recommend to someone that is is looking at seeking support with their business? Obviously, you've had a lot of business experience. When did you start looking for business support? Did you do it right at the beginning of oh, your I journey? Wish.
0: I, wish. I wish I had some business support right at the start. <laughs> in 2006, um, I took over an organization that was already um, in existence, but it was technically bankrupt. I'd never run a business before, but I was bullshy enough to think. (laughs) I've done everything else that I said, I can do this as well. And I wish I'd had support. I spent the first six or seven years in that business being completely bankrupt. The, The business was completely technically bankrupt for six or seven years. Month to month, I was looking at how am I going to pay staff? How am I going to meet the bills? How am I going to run the services? I hadn't got a clue what I was doing. But I didn't think about, even though it had all that therapy and help on a personal level, I didn't think that I should reach out and get some help on a professional level. I mean, how dumb was I back then? <laughs> I mean, honestly, I thought I could do it on, on my own. And it, it took seven years to to start turning things around. But it was around year six, year seven that I also thought, hold on a minute. There's other people out there who must be in the same position I am. I've never had a business before or maybe struggling. Maybe the income isn't what they thought it was going to be. And they're struggling to meet their bills or whatever it is. There must be other people who either want help or want to collaborate and network. So yet again, um, maybe it's because I can't, uh, get on with people and the people I see day to day, I went off and started a new thing. I started, um, it's up in greater Manchester called Bolton together. It still exists. Um, but I started this, um, network of leaders of, uh, both social enterprise businesses and private companies. Um, to come together, particularly if they were new, um, to offer mutual support. Um, I built that up, I think, at the time when I left in 2017, there were 40 different companies involved with that um, network. And I'd started it um, from scratch around, I think it was around 2011. I can't can't quite remember. But during that process, we, we started to talk about how we c- could support each other. And then we started to think, actually, there's professional business coaches out there. And at that point, it was almost like a bit of a light bulb moment. Why did I not think of this before? Of course, it's then how you choose the right um, uh, coach or mentor. And as I said a few minutes ago, do your research, make sure you've chosen the right one and walk away if it doesn't feel right. I wish somebody had told me that because I went through, I can't remember exactly, three, four different business coaches before I found one that felt right for me and, and that actually added value to what I was doing and helped me move forward. I didn't know how to choose a business coach back then. I didn't even know how to do the research. So w- when you get a good business coach or a business mentor, it can add so much value to your personal life, but also to your business. But I definitely made some mistakes in the first few that I chose and I'm sure there's people listening to this. They're thinking, oh yeah, been there, done that. Yep. We've all been there, we've all done that, but it's, it really is about asking other people who've worked with that mentor or that coach, checking out all of their profiles, look at what they've done in the past, look at whether they've got experience of your kind of business or they're, they're known for being skillful at the kind of thing you need, um, support with. And if, if you don't get that, then don't use them. But I still go back to, even if you've done all of that research and you've checked them all out and it seems perfect. In the first five minutes, if it doesn't feel right, still walk away.
1: Yeah. I love that as well, because that works when you're picking any sort of supports and team members, but also when you're making big decisions, like your decision to take over the organization that was bankrupt, that was struggling Mm -hmm. with no business experience. Like, I'm sure there would have been a lot of people where if you did that research, you'd be like, no, no, no. But in your gut, in your heart, it was still there.
0: Literally everybody that I mentioned it to said, do not do that. That is such a bad idea. Yeah. Of course, I've got the kind of personality. If you tell me not to do something, I'm, it's going to make me want to do all, all the more. But prior to taking that on, I was actually a, a senior uh, senior manager for a local authority in the Northwest. So I had a, a really good pension scheme. I had a really good salary. This was before it kind of started to change, I suppose. Yeah, it would have, it would have been before the 2008 e- global economic situation that we, that we all went through. So back then, that kind of a local authority job was seen as secure for life. And then you had a good pension afterwards. And I just decided, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go and take over this bankrupt company and I'm going to turn it into something special. I mean, who in their right mind would have said, yeah, that's a good idea. And it really, you know, it, it wasn't, but I made it work. I made it work.
1: Well, I think that's the understatement of the century. You made it work to the point where it's now an eight figure business and one of the most dynamic fast growing in the whole of Europe. So you made it work just a tad.
0: (laughs) But do you remember when you and a few others, we were sitting around the table and you had to tell me that when it was a seven figure business and I didn't know it had gone from seven to eight and you had to count the numbers up for me. I was thinking, oh, it's been an eight figure business for three years. I'm just not good with numbers. So basically the way I I kind of run the business and the, my focus, if you like, is not about the money coming in. It's not about the profit line. And all that. That's good. It, it is now. It wasn't in the first seven years. My God, it was so different back then. But I focus on transforming lives. I focus on the service we provide. I focus on what it is I want to achieve. The numbers look after themselves now. If I focus everything I do and everything my teams do, on transforming the lives of disabled children and their families, or or if it's in my business consultancy work with business owners and, and their businesses, focus on that. The money just then comes. And I know for some people, you know, they're not in a position where they can wait for the money because it's their new business, but I was in that position for seven years A lots of people told me not to do it. And in those seven years, lots of people said, give up, look how much money you're losing. Look how much, I think I lost a million quid in the first year or something like that. You know, it it wasn't small amounts of money. It was a lot of money. So it was like remortgaging the house. It was taking new credit cards. But I I didn't want to give up. I just didn't want to give up. Um, And eventually it has become successful. But yeah, it went from a seven-figure to an eight-figure business, I think. Was it 2016? Maybe, I think it was the year I won my first international award. Um, but I hadn't realized it had crossed that sort of bracket. Um, now it's, it's, you know, multiple millions. It's, it's a really big business, 600 staff, something in that region. I used to say, when I was talking about the number of staff, I used to say something in the beginning, it was, um, uh, when I took over the company, there were, there were just under 30 staff. And then it went to like a few hundred and now it's 600, but in those early days, I used to say it was 30-odd staff, you know, because in my head, like something around 30. And then somebody said, perhaps you shouldn't call them odd. I actually thought about it. Thought, no, actually, most of them were odd. <laughs> they were they were kind of odd people. Um, but one of the things that I've had to do is is really think about the kind of workforce I want. And I, I don't focus on people with particular skill sets or particular qualifications. Yeah, for some of the jobs in in the, in the business, they have to be you know, we, we run schools for example. So teachers have to be qualified. That's just a given. You can't do anything about it. But what I look for is attitude and aptitude skills and knowledge can come later. You can teach things like that attitude and aptitude. You can. So that's what I look for when, when I'm building the team, but yeah, I did just to call them odd and <laughs> you know, they were kind of in a nice way.
1: <laughs> but we attract who we're like, right? So you give up? No no, 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 that's off Not, not. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. not. I'm
0: not odd. I completely accept that I am definitely a quirky kind of person, and yeah, yeah. you know, if you, I don't want to, I don't want to employ carbon copies of me. I don't want to employ, you know, I don't want like 600 David Reed's in the business. Oh my God, that would be a nightmare for anybody. <laughs> But yeah, you do, you do attract certain kinds of people. And and likewise, you also repel certain kinds of people. And in, in the, in the process of developing such a large team, there has been a lot of, uh, turnover of staff because there's people that just weren't right for the business either because I couldn't work with them or they couldn't work with me, or because I didn't believe that they had the interests of disabled children, um, at the forefront of what they were doing. They just weren't focused on that. They might have been interested in a job or a career or money, but they weren't interested in transforming lives, which is what it's all about for me. And if they're not really focused on that, they're not the right people for me. And I, don't, I think I've maybe gone off a tangent there. I don't No,
1: I love it. I no going off there. This is exactly what I love on the show. And David, the thing I love the most about you, as you said, is you're not attached to the money. Yes, you can see the results and you've got t- incredible finance teams that manage that for you, but you're focused on the transforming lives. Mm. Now, where we have some people hear your story, they might think, oh my God, he's an eight-figure business owner. Of course, it's easy for him not to focus on the money. But the thing I really value when you share your story is how many people were telling you to give up when it wasn't working. Some people can't even handle three months of their business not working. You've handled six to seven years of it. Mm. What what got you through or what helped you ignore the people that were saying, David, give up? And possibly within your own thoughts as well. How did you push through?
0: Well, there were sometimes like. That- thought can I do this for another day there were also sometimes I thought you know the imposter syndrome thing who the hell do I think I am that I think I can do this but then I remembered my 12 year old self making that promise to transform the lives of children and I thought I can't give up because if I give up I'm giving up on them I'm not going to give up on them
1: that's incredible that's just really made my eyes water just a little bit too much but that is, that is so beautiful because I think that's where what I often hear when I hear people on the show or I, I work with the lots of clients, they want to give up because it's hard. But if your why is strong enough, like your pain that you were in going through these six, seven years of quite literally bankruptcy, but the trust and faith to push through was for that big promise. And that's, that's, that's incredible. <laughs> what was the first point or can you remember the first point where you got out of that dark space six seven years was there? was it one moment where you're like oh my god I can sleep for once at night or was there that moment that you can recall
0: <laughs> it didn't used to keep me awake believe it or not so by 2010 the business had, had become big enough to employ the first ever finance director she was the one that didn't sleep <laughs> I I let her have the sleepless nights <laughs> um it was the it was the financial year 2012 2013 when we first made a profit Now, I I said a few minutes ago that in the first year, we lost something like a million pounds. Over those first six years, we lost a hell of a lot of money. In that first year where we turned to profit, 2012-2013, the grand sum of 20,000. But it was a profit. It was a profit. It was going in the right direction. And by that stage, um, uh, the reason for that actually was that I just opened a brand new state-of-the-art special school for children with learning disability and autistic spectrum conditions. And I'd been able to do that because I'd badgered an investment company into giving me money. And I remember the first time I went to talk to them, it was must have been 2007, 2008. I had to come down here to London um, to talk to them. And there was this huge, big investment panel, included government ministers and all sorts at the time. If I'd known that, I probably would have been too frightened to go into the room. Um, but I, I went in and uh, I, I talked to them about, Um, an investment of 1 million um, pounds at the time. I mean, don't forget, we weren't making any money, you know, we were turning over, but we weren't, we're making a loss, but I asked for a million pounds. And one of the panel members who, uh, sorry, the the million pounds was because I wanted to create three children's homes in the community. Um, the, the thinking really was that that would help, uh, move the business forward, I would be able to then think about a school and, and different other services for children with special needs um but the one one of the panel members said to me why should we invest a million pounds in you when you're running a loss making business and the only way the children's home part of your business can succeed is if you have a new school and without thinking and i hadn't planned it i said i'm glad you mentioned that because i'll be back in 12 months asking you for six or seven million to build a school But let me prove I can manage the million pounds first. I walked out of the room and I thought, why did I, what are you, why did I do that? What am I thinking? 12 months to the day later, I was in the very same room and the guy who'd asked the question was there on the panel and I looked over and I went, glad you're here. You'll remember this. You know why I'm here today, don't you? He said, you're the guy that's going to ask for like what I can not remember what I asked for six or 7 million, um, to build a school. Um, we had to put some money into it. So I'd got the first million. Unbelievably, I'd got the first million of investment. I'd used it to create three children's homes in the community. They were all open and they were all full and all successful within a couple of months. So it provided a secure, safe, nurturing home for, I think it was 12 disabled children at the time. Um, but they needed somewhere to go to school that was equally safe, equally secure, equally nurturing, and had a focus on young people who do have educational specialties but still learning in the past it used to be that those kind of children were seen as um, written off in many ways, that they they would never really learn anything of any significance. So there was never an education challenge. I wanted to, to create a school where they were safe, it was nurturing, but the education challenge was still there so that they could go on to have successful and fulfilling lives. Um so I knew that I needed the school. So 12 months later I was back. I got the money. Because I'd managed the first million, I don't know how the hell I did that. I mean, I know nothing about money. I mean <laughs> It worked out all right though. <laughs> when I when I first took over the, um uh, the uh Burnshaw as it was called then it's now the show group um the first day I asked uh to see um management accounts I only asked to see them because I'd heard you're supposed to look at them. Not that I knew what they were about, really. But what I didn't expect was to be shown into this cupboard and these big Dickensian ledgers. And they were literally, you know, I don't know how big they were, huge. You opened them and they were nearly like arm arm span. And they were in this dusty room. You opened, there was dust flying everywhere all over the place. Um, and it was literally handwritten in ink. And I'm thinking, oh my God, who does this anymore? Um, they didn't have proper management accounts. It was actually the the year-end information. They didn't do monthly management accounts or anything like that. So I've gone from that in 2006 to getting a, a million pounds in that first income stream in 2007, 2008, whenever it was. Managing that successfully to going back a year later, getting 7 million or whatever. Or was it was 8.3 in total, so it must have been another 7.3. That meant we could build a school um, on a piece of land that was adjacent to the the building that I'd acquired when I got the business. That school uh, opened in in September, 2012. So it was in the 12, 13 financial year, and it was that um, building that if you like, then became the launch pad for the growth and development that we've been in ever since. So from 2006 to 2012, 13. We'd been in a, a kind of a bankrupt situation. 2012-13 was the first year we made a profit. And from 2012 to now, so we're well, in the 23-24 financial year. So this, I'm my numbers. Is that 11 financial years or 12? I don't know. But in those 11 or 12 financial years, we have been continually growing. Between 2012 and 2016, and one of the reasons that we're, we're regarded as one of the fastest growing um businesses in the uk and europe was between 2012 and 2016 we grew by 4000 percent that's huge that's absolutely huge and that was when i won my first international award i had to go to vienna or somewhere like that to pick it up um i got you know a typical runner or EasyJet little flight over because i didn't have much money in those days i didn't want to spend company money and you know got there and there was big corporate people from flown in from America and all over Europe. I was sitting at this table and people were talking about their businesses being, um, worth billions. And I was thinking, why am I here? What, you know, imposter syndrome again, why am I here? What's this about? And then they started talking about their business growth. And some of them were saying things like, oh, we've achieved 15%. We've achieved 20% we've achieved. And then someone asked me the question. I thought, 4,000 since 2000, 4,000% increase since 2012. And okay, it's on a smaller scale, but the, the percentage growth is still phenomenal. And even those lead, like corporate leaders of billion-dollar industries were floored by the uh, the growth. And I was thinking, but it's just our little company. It's just what we do. It didn't seem such a big deal until those other people thought it was a big deal. I hadn't really tune again, I don't tune into the numbers, do I focus on what we're doing? And for me, what we were doing was we just opened a brand new special school. We were going to be able to provide bespoke education for lots of children with special education needs and disability. So I wasn't thinking about the numbers, but when I compared it, or not so much when I compared it, when these huge corporate representatives, when they thought about it and the way they reacted, that's when I thought, hold on a minute. We've, we've actually achieved something here.
1: Yeah. Do you know what I find fascinating about that story, though, is David, is that I genuinely believe imposter syndrome has layers and levels because some people might be watching and listening to this and going, oh my God, I'm never going to make my first six figures. And you're sat there with an eight figure business looking at these people going, oh my God, like, why am I here? I think everybody has that why am I here moment. Mm-hmm. What have you done in your career to remove the imposter syndrome or at least to quieten it so that you can keep growing? Because sometimes it can stop us as well.
0: It's interesting the the imposter syndrome has never gone away. I've got better at managing it. Can I swear? Of course you can. I usually tell it to fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. When I realize it's creeping in again, it's almost like, you know, some people talk about the kind of the 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 two voices that you can hear—the positive voice and the negative voice—I um, just make sure that I tell the negative one to fuck off and make sure that the positive one's louder. Um, I, I I don't really know it. Maybe there's there's a, an element of that that's self belief. Maybe there's an element of that that's confidence. But you know what? When I think back to what I went through as a as a child, I mean five five six years of physical and sexual abuse and. You know, the number of times I was in hospital, um, basically at death's door as a result of the, the violence and stuff. And if I can survive that, I can survive anything. And if I did survive that, which clearly I did, there has to be a reason. And that's when I started to think about, well, well what is my reason? And it comes back to that whole thing about, I want to transform the lives of children and disabled children, disabled children in particular. And I suppose that's developed a little bit over the years to s- transforming the lives of, uh, of other biz- business owners and, and supporting them and helping them. And very often I do that for free, and I probably shouldn't say that, but <laughs> I very often have done it for free. Um, but it, it, it's about the difference it makes. So I kind of think when the little imposter syndrome voice starts talking, I kind of tell it to shut up or fuck off or whatever because I look back at what have been through and i'm not a victim of abuse i'm a survivor of abuse but because i'm a survivor of abuse i've gone on to do what i consider pretty great things in my life and a lot of people might say but would you not rather have not experienced that would you not rather have had a an ordinary childhood or a good childhood not at all no no absolutely not do i regret that no I actually celebrate it I celebrate the fact that 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 I had those experiences that make me the give me the emotional resilience make me the person I am and that in turn has led to my impact on the world not only on the business people that I work with but on the thousands of disabled children whose lives and their families whose lives I've changed in this country
1: that's just so incredible so inspiring so inspiring and David when you talked about there, you mentioned about your you helping other businesses. So, obviously, you've established the most incredible social enterprise, which is the Bertinshaw Group. And you've got how many schools now?
0: Uh, we have three school buildings and a college building. And then we have multiple children's homes and multiple supported tenancies, we have a small animal, small holding. We've got alpacas for God's sake! We've got alpacas and chickens and whatever else we've got. Um, the alpacas are cute; though. they're really friendly. <laughs> uh, we've got a day centre and uh, we've got a community cafe. Um, uh, oh my God, what alp- Basically,
1: got a village.
0: It's spread out across the northwest with services in uh, Greater Merseyside and Greater Manchester. Um, so currently, we kind of go from Liverpool's the west, isn't it? So Merseyside's the west through to to Manchester so that our next phase of development will be to go over on that M62 corridor over towards kind of Yorkshire probably thinking about uh, maybe Leeds or Doncaster somewhere over that way but we also have a lot of requests from the Midlands authorities and indeed the Pan London authorities to open services so yeah there's we're multiple services across the Northwest but there's still plans to to grow further
1: Wow and you've you've not just stopped there because you've obviously developed Bertensh- the Bertenshaw group to be like you said A lot all over the north and now you're obviously helping other businesses as well so where's the passion come from to now want to help other businesses and is it only businesses like yours is there a kind of a criteria for you (laughs) Uh,
0: no it's not only businesses like mine so if anybody's looking at this on the youtube channel they'll see that i'm not very fit uh the first three businesses that i worked with were personal trainers (laughs) i love that (laughs) Uh, absolutely not mike please
1: can you help me as well (laughs)
0: So that was part of the deal. I help you. You try and help me get into the gym, and you know, works for a couple of weeks, and then I go back to uh, can't be bothered now. Um, so yeah, I've I've worked with all kinds of businesses, but the first three were personal trainers. How did I get into that? Um, actually, two of them were, were guys that I knew and guys that um I worked with. They were my personal trainer, and just in in discussing um, things in the in a training session. At both at different times, but within a couple of years of each other, they both said they wanted to move out of being a personal trainer in a corporate gym and have their own place. One of them wanted to create a uh, an individual a training studio for one to one, only for one to one personal training, and the other wanted to create a, a private gym space but with limited membership. So, d- different kind of ventures. But I helped both of them. Um, start those businesses. And that was, was probably me on the treadmill panting while they're stood there looking like a Greek God telling me their, their business plans. And I'm going, (laughs) I could really help you with that. (laughs) Yeah, I could help you with that. So, um, you know, we, we, we went afterwards and had coffee and sat down. Actually, one of the, one of the guys guy called Matt and he was the one that ended up having his own personal training studio. And I think you might've met Matt eventually. Um, we sat down and literally did the business plan on the back of a napkin at a David Lloyd uh, leisure centre. Am allowed to say David Lloyd? Other leisure centres do exist. Um, so we, we we literally sat down, coffee, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, did the business plan, and his business was up and running. That was on a Sunday morning. His business was up and running, not the, the day after, but the Monday after that, eight days to get his business up and running.
1: Wow, that's incredible.
0: And definitely that is not my kind of business.
1: <laughs> so what's your... What is your criteria? Because let's be honest, David, you've invested in businesses, you've mentored a lot of businesses. Obviously, you're not doing it for free all the time, but you have had, I know for a fact I've been sat in rooms where people are queuing up trying to ask you for business advice. What's your criteria of how you pick, yes, I can support this business?
0: If that business helps other people in some way, whether that's with their well-being, their physical health, their mental health, or any other element, there has to be something within that business that's helping other people. My whole mantra, as you know, is transforming lives. It may not be as, as as strong a mantra as that, but they have to do something that helps others. If their business doesn't help others in any way, I'm not interested. Um, I've never really been interested, though, in um, anything to do with with housing and construction. You could say, well, that helps people. It gives them somewhere safe and secure to live. I'm not interested in that. But are there anything to do with the tobacco industry, the alcohol industry? Um, pornography and stuff like that. I was never getting involved in anything like that. So it's generally businesses that in some way or other help others to improve the quality of their life.
1: It's so so great hearing you talk about it because it all comes under that transforming lives. It really does. So question for you. On the show, obviously, we are talking about inspiration and we have been incredibly inspired by you today. It's just been incredible. Who has been the most transformational in your life or who has been the most inspirational person that you've been around or had the pleasure of working with?
0: I actually think it was that youth worker that I talked about all those years ago when I was around 16 or 17. And, you know, I I employ people now who are teachers and youth workers and support workers, and one of the things I tell them is that absolutely everything you say and everything you do can change somebody's life, but you may not know when it's happening, so always be careful what you're doing and what you're saying. But thinking back to that youth worker, I, I stayed in touch with her for the rest of her life. And it was that short conversation. Like, yeah, you've had a shit time. What are you going to do about it? It was that, what is that, two sentences? That was the beginning of the change. She changed my life. And whilst I didn't have a, a long working relationship with her or anything like that, I can't ever forget the, the absolute dramatic impact that that had. And sometimes that's all it takes. A few words, a few minutes of somebody's time. I mean, you've just mentioned about like in events, people queuing up to, to speak to me. If I can speak to somebody for two minutes or five minutes and that changes their life or their business, why would I not do that? I mean, that makes me feel good. Why would I not do that? So it it is really thinking back. I mean, I've worked with some incredible people over the years, but I have to credit that youth worker for being the pivotal moment that that took what could have been a, a pretty disastrous life and and really turned it totally about face and and started me on the path that I eventually took
1: Wow, that's so amazing and you're talking about the path that you took obviously it's been quite an inspirational journey I'm sure as many you have, you've shared already David ups and downs what's next for David Reed?
0: Um, I'd like to get back in the gym if you're talking about personal stuff uh, <laughs> despite having a couple of years of ill health and putting on some weight I've still focused on you know the Bertenshaw Group and the other businesses that I support, personally, I would like to get fitter and healthier again. Um, but I suppose I'm at that age where I think, eh, is that really important? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, maybe I will. I, I've been in the gym a few times recently, but it's, it's harder work at this age. Um, professionally, the Bertenshaw Group, um, we have a, a stated business aim of creating, uh, a bespoke special needs school in every local authority in England within 10 years. And when you create a special needs school, you then have to, ha- it almost becomes like a hub and you have a, a satellite um, system of, of other services around it because children who attend the special needs school, they're going to need things like hydrotherapy or physiotherapy or occupational therapy, speech and language therapy, all of which of course we do within the burnshaw group, but when you, when we open a new school, we have to plan for all of those additional services and generally. If children with special education needs and disability, when they get to a, a puberty, usually around 10, 12 years old, something like that, they often then, their families need support at least part of the time with care services, so we need to create short break centres or children's homes. So whilst the stated aim is to have a, a special needs school in every local authority area in the country within 10 years, um, there'll be lots of satellite services around each one of those. But from start to finish, it's about three years to four years from saying yes we're going to do it in this area to 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 getting the land um getting the planning permission commissioning a construction firm and then there's usually about 18 months of build so you know you're talking about so i'm always looking three or four uh over three or four hills in the future i mean my, my team are working in the present i'm kind of always thinking roughly five years or more ahead um, and I know I can visualize where we want that next school and what it's going to look like and what other services might be around it. Um, we, we've literally just, uh, opened a new school in January of this year. Um, it was slightly delayed in terms of the, the construction fees. It was due to open September last year, and there should have been 20 children, um, coming to that school, but I'm damned if I was going to not give them an education service. So even though the building wasn't ready, even though we didn't have a school building to bring them to, I had acquired another building last year for for a different purpose. and I contacted the DFE and said, these children, we can't bring them into the school. It's not ready. Can I use this other building? It's not a it's not a registered school. it's it's not a school building. It wasn't built as a school. And initially their answer was no. And I said, you don't understand. That's not the correct answer. So we had a bit of a debate and we eventually got permission to use that building as a temporary school. And that meant that those 20 children who should have been coming to the new school building came to this other building that had acquired last year in September, went to school there between September and December, didn't miss any education whatsoever, and then transferred to the new building in January once we were able to open it. And I think it was another 12 children joined them in, um, january and then we've had some more join in uh, april so we're gradually working up to the full capacity of that building special schools tend to have um, lower numbers of children than than other what people refer to as mainstream schools so we'll eventually have 72 children in that school building but it's right beside the original school that i told you about did open in uh, 2012 and there's 60 children there and they can share all of the resources so between the two buildings we've got two hydrotherapy pools one is i think it's about 15 or 17 meters the other's olympic size i mean it's massive it's fabulous um um, we have swimming groups and uh parent and toddlers swimming clubs that come and hire it out you know when the school is closed and they have swimming lessons for newborn babies and swimming lessons for toddlers if you go in there on a saturday there's like hundreds of toddlers coming in throughout the day learning to swim so there's two of those we've multi-use games areas by the way that's called a mugger um, My sports team, oh yeah, I didn't mention that. We've got a sports team. We have the only sports team that we know of in the UK that works with disabled children to try and get them into um para para sports. Um, So somebody in my sports team kept talking about these muggers. I hadn't got a clue what I'm talking about getting into businesses you don't know anything about. I hadn't got a clue what a mugger was. Anyway, it's an outdoor multi-use games area. We've got a couple of those now. We've also got a fully accessible, full-size gym that, children with special needs can use and we've got outdoor gyms and we've got lots of other resources and we do pony, pony trekking and all that kind of stuff. So it's about giving these children the best experience and the best start in life. Um, So that school, the one that opened in January will be full by September. Because it's going to be full by September I'm now planning the next one. So we're in negotiations with a couple of local authorities about um, how great the need is in certain areas before we finalise where that's going to be. Currently though, there's a massive uh, management restructure. Uh, the business is huge already, but it's for the next phase of growth, we need to restructure the, um, the, the whole senior management team. I've created a chief operating officer. I used to have two deputy chief executives. You were my deputies. There's now a, a chief operating officer and a tier of executive directors but I need to enhance that and grow that and embed that so that the the business is ready for the future for the next phase of growth. When would it get to a nine-figure business? I don't know, many knots Would there have to be before it's a nine-figure? I don't know, but for the next phase of growth. Incredible.
1: David, my question for you, you've achieved so much. And I remember when I first went into one of the facilities you have, I was like, because I've known you so well, but not in that capacity. When I walked in, I was like... Oh my God, like David created this? Obviously not on your own, but you, your vision. Have you ever had that moment where you've been into some facility you've created or a moment where you've gone, I can't believe I'm the one that did this?
0: Each new building we create, I go into it and there's two things that happen almost simultaneously. There's one side of my brain that says, anyone looking at this is going to think it's fabulous. And the other side of my brain is picking out the faults, the things that I can see that aren't exactly as I designed them or exactly as I'd requested them or as I envisaged them. So it's it's, it's almost that duality again of the positive and the negative. The new building that opened in January, anybody that comes to that building, the one you've been to is in Merseyside. We took all the learning from that. The one we opened in January is even better than that one but I can still see faults in it. So yes, I walk in and I I can see how great it is, but I can also see we need to make sure this doesn't happen for the next one. So there's always that ongoing learning and that ongoing striving for excellence and being better the next time around. There's no point in doing it the same again. You're going to do it, do it better. But i tell you what does happen. Most special schools that I visit that aren't part of the Burnshaw Show Group or most children's homes that I visit that aren't part of the Bertenshaw group, I go into and I think, really? We allow some of the most vulnerable children and young people in our society to live in this? Our sector needs to change. And if you like, I see Bertenshaw, or the Bertenshaw group, as leading the way for the part of the sector that supports children with special education needs and disability. But there are, there are other parts of the sector that deal with I suppose what most people refer to as mainstream children or perhaps children with behaviors that can be considered challenging, or perhaps who have a primary diagnosis of a mental health issue. There needs to be a disruptor like the Burnshaw group in that part of the market. Actually, uh, uh, Craig Dearden Phillips is somebody that could be a disruptor. And actually, I think perhaps you should invite him onto your show. I think he could be a disruptor um, in the part of the market for young people with either mental health issues or behaviours that could be challenging. And I think he's as passionate about that part of the sector as I am about the special needs part of the sector.
1: Oh, fantastic. That's amazing, David. Thank you. And I would 100% reach out to him. That sounds incredible. Now, my final question for you. You talked about the young boy that started this whole journey. If you could speak to him now, what would you say to him?
0: You'll never fucking believe what you achieve.
1: Oh, wow. That's incredible. Yeah. And I I, I love hearing your story, David, because I think there is so much you've achieved from such a raw and, let's be honest, not something that would anyone probably would have even imagined, especially when people meet you. Mm. Like I said, only now have I started hearing you in the last three, four, five years, really explain what happened to you in your childhood. And I think it's, it's so incredible for people to hear because I think a lot of people see people like yourself... With the money, with the results, hearing all the awards—I mean, you've won some incredible awards—sat in front of this mic, and they go, "Oh yeah, it's all nice for him." But people would never really know what's gone on behind the scenes, and that's why I love having people like yourself on the show. Because yes, you have won some incredible awards, including the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Queens of Business. And
0: thank you very much. For-
1: a lot, a lot of your, a lot of people would see that and think you've got your shit together. But for everyone to know that actually, there's always something underneath that not everyone shares and I'm really glad that you've shared it here today you're welcome thank you so much well David thank you again for being here it's been an absolute pleasure to interview you and for everyone that wants to find out more about you what's the best way should we send people to your LinkedIn pages website if they
0: they look for Dr David Reed on LinkedIn and you'll see the Burton Shaw connection there as well that's probably the the best way and if you want through LinkedIn you can send me a private message
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much, David. Well, everyone who've been watching, I hope you have been enjoying this interview. It has been incredibly inspiring for myself, who I already knew so much about David, and I still found out more. So those of you that are interested in finding out more about David, definitely reach out to him on LinkedIn. We'll put the links all around the description and the bio. Now, my question for every single one of you, if you are watching this on our YouTube channel, do share in the comments what has been the most inspiring thing that you've received today from us? What has been the most inspiring message that you got out from David? listening to this episode and if you have been listening to it on any one of the many podcast platforms whether it's apple itunes spotify or more do make sure if you haven't already that you follow the show so you don't miss out on our next inspiring guest i cannot wait to see you same time next week